Well, good morning. When Americans celebrate the 4th of July, they call it Independence Day, recalling that day when our founding fathers asserted that the English colonies hugging the Atlantic coast were no longer dependent on the mother country, but were free to chart their own course and make their own decisions. In many ways, this event is characterized the same way that adolescents would celebrating coming of age through graduation, high school, turning 18, and the beginning of adulthood by entering the workforce or college. The emphasis of freedom, or more precisely, liberty, to do what you want without restriction. For many, this is where the story of Independence Day begins and ends, with the emergence of a new nation no longer dependent and exercising its newfound freedom. We even made up stories that support the notion that everyone in America had a right to be free from every constraint. We contrived histories that the Founding Fathers intended the government to be small and weak so that people could thrive in an atomized world of self-interested beings, leading inevitably to the conclusion that rugged individualism was a source of all national success. To this day, our culture worships youth and vitality as the epitome of adulthood and bold individual action as the key to achievement and success. But this attitude pays way too much attention to freedom and not enough to our mutual dependence or interdependence. Today, we're going to depart from the usual practice of glorifying our history in terms of the struggle for freedom and speak more of the duties and responsibilities that we all have as members of the American community. This is not to say that freedom isn't important. It is. But Americans tend to minimize the responsibilities and non-military sacrifices that freedom entails. Freedom has been an underlying theme in American life since the first English colonist landed at Jamestown in 1607. Colonies such as Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Maryland were established to provide religious freedom for separatists or Puritans, Quakers, or Catholics, respectively, who were persecuted and oppressed in Britain. Georgia was established by a member of parliament, James Oglethorpe, to transplant people from debtor's prison to a life free from debt. All were promoted by their founders as places where individuals and families had almost unlimited freedom to pursue dreams of treasure, land ownership, and prosperity. And of course, they could do so because the land was wide open to settlement, right? Englishmen didn't consider the indigenous people who had already survived the decimation of European diseases as having any right to live in this land. That's a topic for another sermon. But the founders of each colony also envisioned a new society, one that conformed to their own values and beliefs. Both Massachusetts and Virginia were each expressly established as a commonwealth, a community governed for the common good, as opposed to an authoritarian state governed for the benefit of a given class of owners. At least that's what they professed. The Mayflower Compact was an instrument whereby pilgrims agreed to form such a commonwealth for the good of all. For one and three-quarter centuries, colonists exercised their freedom to build not just their fortunes, but communities, cities, towns, colonies, with their own representative governments, designed to protect and serve the needs of the people. This was the experience that led the colonists to believe they could manage their own affairs through democratic means. 
The seeds of American re revolution were sown when Britain tried to exert more authority over its colonies by controlling its trade and imposing more taxes, most of which were intended to pay for the war with France in 15, uh, 1754 to 63, known in Europe as the Seven Years' War, but known to colonists as the French and Indian War, since its primary activity here was protection of the English colonies from Indian attacks and French incursions. At the conclusion of that war, Britain set a hard line at the Appalachians, beyond which English settlement was not allowed. American colonists felt oppressed by the new taxes and duties imposed by King and Parliament, and they were eager to occupy the Indian lands to the west. Independence was intended to allow the Americans to resume their previous state of self-government, freedom to chart their own future, and to expand west. Like the baby in the riddle of the Sphinx, American colonists in 1776 were largely dependent on the mother country for protection and many of the necessities of living. Under the mercantilist economic system of England, the colonists had to buy all of their manufactured goods from England, which imposed high tariffs. So the ordinary townspeople were leaders where leaders like Samuel Adams and John Hancock mobilized them. They were resentful of their rulers both in the colonies and in England. But John Hancock was a known smuggler, and Samuel Adams helped to redirect the anger of the common people towards the king's agents in the colonies instead of them. Americans wished to be in control of their own affairs, much as children yearned for self-respect and self-determination, even if ill-prepared for it. Anyone with children is familiar with the experience when a child first learns the word no, and the struggle for control it starts with the parental authorities. It gets even more pronounced as adolescents, in adolescence as teenagers believe they know better than their parents. But the Continental Congress was never about liberating individual colonies. At the same time as Jefferson and others were asked to write the Declaration of Independence, John Dickinson, Roger Sherman, and others were put on a committee to craft the document that would unite the colonies under a central government as a central single nation. Dickinson, by the way, who was born in Talbot County, Maryland, refused to sign the Declaration of Independence. Thank you. He thought it was premature. But he crafted the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union between the colonies. He did later serve in the Continental Army. He was president of Delaware. Yeah, they had a president one time. And president of the Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania during the Revolution. If there's any doubt about his uh, devotion to the American cause, we'll close the service today with the Patriot Song, which he wrote in 1768, a full eight years before the Declaration was signed. That anthem includes a chorus pledging money to the cause of freedom, but it also includes the first usage of the phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. But like Jefferson and the richest man in the colonies, George Washington, Dickinson was a member of the wealthy white Protestant elite, and the Articles of Confederation, later the Constitution, were clearly meant to maintain their preeminence in the nation. However, the articles he graft, drafted are based around a concept of person, not man, although men was used when he talked about armies. It was also stated that, quote, the colonies shall unite themselves so as never to be divided by any act whatever. So whatever one thinks of the founding fathers, the actions of Dickinson and others demonstrate a clear recognition of the need for common action 
and community. It's appropriate at this point to recognize that this was largely a revolt of elites against elites, one whereby free white English men with property and wealth substituted their rule for what that of the king's appointed agents. To accomplish this, they took advantage of the unrest of the lower classes, molding labor class opinion, called the mob into action, and shaped its behavior. While the oratory and writings of these elites was clearly based on high-minded principles and beliefs, the end result was the continuation of systems that treated Indians as a nuisance to be eradicated or removed, poor white men as expendable, and ignored the value of women altogether. Poor white men, however, were useful to the cause since they provided the numbers the cannon fodder needed to challenge the Crown's armies. Contrary to common opinion today, the founders were not radical libertarians and did not design a system of government that assured gridlock to check government power over individuals. They believed that it was possible to build a good society based on their core values. The values that now define the American community include the belief that society should provide its citizens with equal opportunity, material well-being, opportunity for individual self-fulfillment, and that it should operate on the principles of fairness, justice, compassion, and the rule of law. Instead of being pure libertarians, they were actually communitarians. They recognized that human being was by nature a social animal, as well as an individual with a desire for autonomy. They believed that a healthy society must have a correct balance between individual autonomy and social cohesion. While mindful of human tendencies to act in self-interested ways, communitarians believe that it's possible to build a good society based on the desire of human beings to cooperate, to achieve community goals that are based on positive values. This has been the essential optimistic view that has animated Americans throughout our history. New times raise new issues, but the communitarian focuses on the values of the good society provides a vital guide to maintaining the good society. If we believe in community, we need to help change the prevailing attitude of our fellow Americans away from the myth of unbridled liberty and rugged individualism. We need to embrace the true commonwealth in which we live. Now, our Unitarian and Universalist forebears share the same history and political values but they developed the concept of individual freedom, especially individual religious freedom, to the highest level. In the 19th century, Henry David Thoreau famously said, I heartily accept the motto, that government is best which governs least, and I should like to see it acted up to more rapidly and systematically. Carried out, it finally amounts to this, which I also believe, that government is best which governs not at all. Ralph Waldo Emerson, however, was the most influential on Unitarian thought, having saved many from what Reverend Fred Muir in Annapolis calls a national and spiritual conspicuous conformity. Emerson demanded, quote, demanded that we know and name our uniqueness as humans and as Americans and take joy in both. The seeds of American exceptionalism here. He, quote, asserted that the United States must stop living in the shadow of Europe and embrace its own cultural identity. And he stated that those who speak spiritual truth must shed orthodox Christianity. 
For individuals in the collective, his message reinforced the same idea. Trust yourself. Every person has all they need to know, so just listen to and believe in yourself. Quote, your own reason is the voice of God himself, he preached in 1832. It speaks to you and all humankind without an interpreter. But our faith movement has also adopted more communitarian beliefs. Our commitment to building the beloved community being the most prominent. As enunciated by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., the beloved community is a global vision in which all people can share the wealth of the earth. Poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice will be resolved by peaceful conflict resolution and reconciliation of adversaries instead of military power. Love and, Trump, love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. Peace with justice will prevail over war and military conflict. In all conflicts, the beloved community should end with reconciliation of adversaries cooperating together in the spirit of friendship and goodwill. Emerson's words have helped many people to break free of oppressive religious ideologies and communities. But over the years, they've built an ideology of individualism, where each person's beliefs, desires, and even whims are given priority over those of the community. There are often personal reasons why individualism has so much attraction to UUs, especially those who left a confining theology and community of another faith and are acutely attuned to attempts to impose religious beliefs on others. Among these folks, there is often a strong aversion to the Christian dogma and opposition to God language. The joke is that UUs are poor singers because they're always reading ahead to see if they agree with the words. Thank goodness our choir doesn't go by those. These UUs have something in common with adolescents. They insist on doing everything their way and assert their individualism, sometimes even when it hinders building consensus and community. I shared these in, in tendencies when I was younger, although I was brought up UU. I had Southern Baptist grandparents who were constantly trying to convert me. When I was a young child, of six or seven, they even got permission from my parents to take me all the way to Denver to a Gideon's convention. You know the Bibles in the hotels? Those Gideons. There I was taken by youth leaders and brainwashed until... Brainwashed until I broke down and cried and took the Lord Jesus as my Savior. Well, my conversion lasted one day. But I had a hard time forgiving them. My parents continued to support me. And eventually I became a more forgiving UU. It took me a long time to outgrow the need to insist on my own way, though. Now there are many who have been brought up UU or came from more liberal traditions or none at all. And these folks never acquired the tendency to react negatively to Christian doctrine. 
these you use along with many other converts who've gotten past their aversion to Christianity are more reflective, less skeptical of all church authority, and more attracted to the universalist faith in the beloved community. Rather than talk about the UU movement in terms of what we don't make people swear to believe, they're more concerned with understanding their own UU identity and the identity of our community and knowing how to defend it as a real religion. One that makes our congregations places where the beloved community resides and flourishes. While Emerson was a strong proponent of respecting and appreciating one's individuality, and that's a good thing, we don't have to make individualism the hallmark of our church. Ours is a faith of compassion and generosity, one that agrees with Margaret Fuller. For a community community to be whole and healthy, it must be based on people's love and concern for one another. When you use who have liberated themselves from doctrinaire religious traditions arrive at our door, we welcome them, help them to heal their woundedness, and celebrate their individuality. But we should also help them move past the focus on freedom and towards independence, interdependence with a loving community. While we should always be grateful to those who help free generations from stifling dogma and conformity, we need to mature into healthy relationships that appreciate others' individuality, recognize the desires and needs of others. Relationships where we don't always have to be right or to be in control to dominate our world. To live into the deep universalism of our faith, we need to turn from insistence on our own individual rights, turn to inclusion of all, especially those excluded by our forebears, into our beloved community, recognizing the need we have for each other. We need to lean on each other, the canes we use as we mature and age. We need interdependence. E pluribus unum. From many, one. This is a turning point for our nation and our faith. It's time we grew up. <laughs>